0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now.
1: Till candidate Franklin Roosevelt promised, "quote I have said this before, but I will say it again and again. Your boys will not be. Your boys are not going to be sent to any foreign wars." It was October 1964. Candidate Lyndon Johnson promised, quote, We are not about to send American boys nine or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. Both quotes in No Matter How Thin You Slice It is Still Baloney, basically, by Gene Arbiter. This was church this was used to polit- we're, we're we're used to politicians not keeping their campaign promises and the outrageous quotes that hardly bother us cuz we know in 1940 and 1964 we know that was a promise that was broken but what does bother us greatly when someone we love or someone we trust fails to keep an important promise you go, how's that? Well, when we listen to campaign promises, we go, yeah, 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 they're going to promise, they're on the political trail. But really when it hits home, when it strikes a nerve in our heart is when, we, when, when someone we love and someone we trust, they, they fail to keep an important promise. When they say, I promise to love you in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer, and to keep myself ever and only for you till death do us part. When those kinds of promises are broken, guys, it leaves a pail of, of grief, a trail of grief and pain. I think about it like this If I were leaving on a long trip and I entrusted you to a rare family treasure, which you promised to keep safe for my return, I might be a bit angry only to return and find that you had sold it in a yard sale. You broke your promise. Church, listen, we are hurt when people fail to keep important promises. We're grieved and we're hurt. We don't understand. Oh, sure, Pastor, we're used to political promises, but what what about when it comes to when we promise each other? And then more than that, church, what happens? And what about the promises of God? If we're going to entrust our soul for eternity to God, it's important to know that he keeps his promises. Now, here's the rub. You go, what's that, Pastor? Most of us have had an experience of being disappointed with God. You go, what? Well, here's the thing, guys. We trusted him for something. We thought that he had promised, and it didn't work out as we had hoped. And whenever this happens, it is we, not God, who are mistaken. We somehow fail to understand or properly apply his promises. But when it comes to eternal destiny, it is crucial that we properly understand and apply God's promise of salvation. Listen, church. It is vital for you and I to understand. It is vital for you and I, as we grow in the grace of our Lord, to understand that God does keep his promises. But it's our responsibility to know and apply his word in our lives. You go, well, how so? But let me, let me say this, right? Promises, I mean, promises are funny things, aren't they? Promises, you go, what are they? Well, let me say this. Promises are easy to make and often easier to break. But they're generally hard to keep. I promise. Church, let's face it. Sometimes keeping promises really is hard. And maybe that's the part of the reason why so many people break them. And of course, I believe there's other reasons why promises are broken. And it was a fellow by the name of Marshavelli who wrote this quote, The promise given was a necessity of the past. The word broken is a necessity of the present. Perhaps they gave their promise to get something they wanted, but now that they have it, they no longer feel the need to honor that promise. Or perhaps when they gave their promise, they really intended to honor it, but now that their situation has changed, they realize that keeping their promise will be de- will be detrimental to them. But breaking it will be advantageous to them. So what do they do? They break their promise. It got me thinking about the word of God. And when it comes to the promises of God, there's one thing we need to note. Church, listen, God never breaks his promises. He never breaks them. And that's where we pick up our study this evening. Remember what we talked about last week. We started a brand new series called Foundations. We're in the book of Ezra, and we realize that we're going to go verse by verse by verse. And And when you look at chapter two, you're going to go, wow, that's just a bunch of names. But remember what we talked about, okay? Let's just kind of put it in context. The book of Ezra is one of spiritual renewal. How so? The people are coming home. And here's what they're doing. They're coming home, and they are going to build the foundation in the temple of God. But what God's going to do is something even more incredible. He's going to build the spiritual foundation in each one of them. You see, the book is basically broken up this way. If you're taking notes, it's in two sections. Chapters 1 through 6, guys, deal with the initial return of the remnant from Babylon under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Now, if you're taking note, his Babylonian name is Sheshbazar, Sheshbazar, okay? And you go, what do you mean? Well, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, Mika- and Abednego, these were Babylonian names to their Hebrew names in the same well, in the same way, Zerubbabel's going to come in, but when we look at him in scripture, he's actually going to be called Sheshbazar, and he comes back, In leadership, about 538 BC with the aim of doing one thing, restoring the temple. You go, well, what happened? Well, before we find out what happened, remember, the project began about 536. And any time you want to build your walk with God, the same thing that happened back in Scripture is going to happen to us. You go, what's that? Opposition happens. Right? They come in and they start to build the temple. Opposition quickly arose. What happened? Like a lot of people, they abandoned the temple project. They, you, you gotta understand what's going on. They're coming back. Yeah, we're gonna build the house of our God. Yes, the foundation. People go, no, you're not. And there's all this opposition. For 16 years, they stopped the work. And I wonder how we could apply that to our lives. You see, when we say, I am getting serious about Jesus, I want to know him. I want to know him in the good times. I want to know him in the bad times. I want to know the Lord, and I'm ready to jump in full force. Opposition will always come, and a lot of people, church, will step back and say, oh, and they'll abandon the work for such a time. And you'll see many people walking around, and they'll claim Christianity, but they have no life in them whatsoever. They don't have the Spirit of God illuminating and growing them like they should. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm just a Christian. And, and, and they'll abandon what happened. Man, I really was on fire for the Lord, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And of course, it's going to come. I don't like it as much as you do, but I got to be honest with you. Jesus said, in this life, you are going to suffer tribulation. There's going to be spiritual attacks. The devil hates us. We went to a conference last month and the pastor said that's his job his job is to attack you his job is to distract you his job is to cause you to stumble that's his job i mean i know you want him to say well listen i'm having a really bad hair day could you roll off me for just a moment he's saying no and we need to understand that see that's what happens that's what happens and so guys 16 years and it through the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah the construction comes back and, and it begins to it's coming to completion at least 515 BC so 16 years what happened what were people doing and then between chapter 6 and 7 guys there's a 58 year gap in which the the events of the book of, of Esther take place Esther, so right after Nehemiah, you go, oh, what's right after Nehemiah? Well, then it's Esther, and you can kind of fit it right in there. You go, oh, this makes sense. And at the beginning of chapter 7, church, in 457 BC, 81 years after the first return, Ezra comes on the scene, even though he's credited to writing this. Remember, Zerubbabel... Or Shesh Sheshbazar is coming and he's leading to, to what? To build the foundation of the temple. All of this stuff happens. But in chapter 7, Ezra, we'll call him Pastor Ezra because he's the priest. Pastor Ezra comes back and God is going to build in them the very thing that he's wanted all along. And so you're going, oh, okay, so Ezra's coming in. He's going to lead a smaller group and they're going to return to the land and bring renewal to the temple who are already drifting into assimilation with the surrounding people. What happened? Well, they began to get comfortable back in Jerusalem with the enemies. And all of a sudden, guess what happened? They started looking more like the world than they did like Christians. Ezra comes in. He says, guys, no, no, no. We got to talk about this. We got to talk about this. Now, the key lesson we learned last week, guys, was that Israel has been in captivity for how long? 70 years, okay? They've been in Babylon the whole time. Now, the reason was given for them being in Babylon was was really simple. Does anybody know the reason? It's called disobedience. Disobedience. Why? God came in, he said, guys, listen, I'm going to give you this land You're supposed to have the Sabbath year, every seventh year, let the land rest. The sixth year, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to double your crops, but the seventh year, let the land rest. For 490 years, Israel disobeyed God. Not only were they in disobedience, but I can tell you this, they were into, according to Jeremiah, they were into idol worship. Do you guys see the parallel? disobedience will always bring us into worshiping something else. Disobedience to the word of God will always usher into worshiping something other than God. That's what's happening here. Jeremiah is talking about it. We learned for 40 years, Jeremiah has been pounding the pavement, if you will, speaking out against the, to the nation of Israel. Guys, you need to Turn. He was preaching a message to them. And in the message, he declared that it was imperative that they turn from their idolatry. Now, here's the lesson we learned last week. Here's the lesson. Jot this down. Spiritual revival in our lives requires great power, working according to his gracious promises for his glorious purpose. That really is the lesson. Spiritual revival. God, revive us, O Lord. But it requires God's great power working, how? In accordance to his gracious promises and his glorious purpose. Wow. Well, it's that time again. Cyrus, king of Persia, if you're taking notes, Persia is modern-day Iran, so you can kind of get an idea we know that Babylon is, Babylon, Babylon is Iraq, Persia is Iran, so you can kind of go, oh, I didn't know that. Cyrus comes in, he is what? He is the king of Persia. God moves in his heart. Wait a minute, pastor, are you telling me that some of these heathen kings who pay no attention to God, God still directs to use as his servants? Can I get an answer? Absolutely. And here's my prayer. If God can take the most powerful men in the world and move their hearts like Proverbs tells us, guys, we can pray for God to do that in any man. You're saying, you go, my husband, he will not, I just want him closer to the Lord. My wife, Lord, move, you can change a heart. You can change a heart. Well, Ezra I mean, I'm sorry, Cyrus. God moves in his heart and he decrees that Israel can go back to Jerusalem to build the house of God. In verse 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he also put it in Writing Now, there were two things that we grasped last week's study, okay, that I want you to really understand, okay? If you didn't take a note, giving you a second chance. First thing we learned, guys, was this was the first year that Cyrus conquered Babylon because we know he came into power as king of Persia in 560 B.C. Well, there's a gap there. Why? Because this is 538 B.C., so we have to do some work, right? So we know that Cyrus came in, and this is when he actually conquered Babylon. It wasn't the first year of him actually becoming king. You're like, oh. You go, why is that important? Guys, it's important because it should give us an appetite to study in hunger for the word of God there are a lot of times when we'll simply read it and we'll just be like, I don't understand. If Cyrus was, was the king of 560 and he says, in the first year of King Cyrus 538, I don't get it. That's why we have to study and go, oh, I see. This is why a lot of people will take the word of God and they'll say this, they'll go, hey man, there's a lot of contradictions in it, man. There's just a lot of flaws. And you go, show me. Well, look, it said in the first year, King Cyrus of Persia. It's like, no, no, do a little bit of study. This is the first year he actually conquered Babylon, 538 B.C. What's the application? Pray that God would give us a hunger to study his word. Pray that God would give us a hunger to know his word. Guys, this is... This is not just black letters on a white page. This is the word of God. And Timothy tells us this is God breathed right here and it's profitable in our lives. And so we have to go, okay, I'm going to study it. I'm going to dig deep. Hence the important guys of what we call a quiet time or a devotion time. Spending time with Jesus. We have to make that, we have to make that Foundation firm in spending time with Jesus, because if we don't, guys, I mean, it's we're, we'll just we'll just fade away. You know, Pastor, I'm not even sure what a quiet time is, but listen, it's when you spend time just talking to God and reading His Word. Now, remember, it's not a it's not a monologue. You know, what I'm talking about. Where we go, God, here I am, and I'm praying for this, and I'm praying for that. Give me this and give me that and give me this and give me that. In Jesus' name, Amen. That's a mo we're just telling him well, listen, when we have a time with Jesus, we have a dialogue. You read a little bit and pray, let him answer through his word, and you worship a little bit more and just have this great time and just spending time with the Lord. And so you've got to ask yourself one question, church. Am I having that time with Jesus? Am I having that time? That's so vital. That's so vital. What's the second thing we learned, Pastor? The first thing is we learn, okay, the importance of studying the word of God. Well, the second thing we learned last week from verse 1 is that the word came by Jeremiah that it would be fulfilled, God's promise. You go, how so? Well, jot this down. If you're taking note, we don't have time to go through that. We did last week. Jeremiah 25, 12, this is God's promise. He says, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity says the Lord and I will make it a perpetual desolation. You go, what? What did he say? Daniel's reading this and he goes, here's the promise. We're only going to be in Babylon for 70 years. This is the promise. We get to go home. We get to go home. We get to go home. Somewhere, and I don't have it off the top of my head, but we know in the Word of God, it tells us that most most folks, average lifespan is about 70 years. And you get to go home. You get to go home. Now, some people... Amen. You know what? They'll live to 80, 90, 100. That's cool too. But on, and 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 some won't make it to 70. I mean, it's all balanced out. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see, after 70 years, guys, I mean, chances are, we get to go home. We get to go home. You don't have to answer by raising your hand. I wonder how many of us are looking forward to home. Are you homesick? Are you homesick? Pastor, I don't don't, don't know if I'm homesick. Well, Cyrus makes a decree. He makes a proclamation. And so as we come to our text tonight, guys, we discover that God does keep his promises. Listen to, listen what Cyrus decreed in verse 4 is actually enacted in verse 6. All the neighbors including Israel, supported them as they went back home with silver articles, gold goods, stocks, livestock, valuables. In addition, there was a free will offering given to them. Now, you go, wait a minute, say that again? Okay. In verse 4 that we learned last week, he says, okay, how many of you want to go home? And, and, and 50,000 said, I want to go home. I'm ready to go back to Jerusalem. He says, okay, the rest of you, you need to, I mean, you need to support the work. You need to give. And all the neighboring, all of neighboring of Babylon, right? It says all of them gave what? They gave their gold, guys. They gave silver. Listen, they gave, I mean, livestock and, and valuables. And then, as a matter of fact, they took up an offering. You're going back. Here you go. And they supported the work. And I thought, where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that before? You go, wait a minute, Ben. Wasn't it the first Exodus? Yeah, if you're taking, no, Ezra is often related and often as the second Exodus as the children of Israel come out of Babylon back to Israel. But the first Exodus was the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, right? You guys know this. You've watched the Ten Commandments. You see them come out, and you guys remember what happened. You go, "What that? God put in the heart of the Egyptians to fund the project. You go, what do you mean? It was the Egyptians who gave freely for Israel when they left Egypt. They were so tired of the plagues and everything else. They're like, here, take it. Just go. Just get out of here. It was Exodus chapter 12 and verse 36. It says, the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. Can you imagine? That's where they got, well, unfortunately, that's where they got their gold when they were sitting at Mount Sinai. What did they do there? They built a knife. You guys remember that? Moses was gone, getting the law. They're sitting here going, where's Moses? Anybody know where Moses is? Moses has gone a long time. Anybody know where Moses? Moses, have you seen Moses? Anybody get a fax on Moses? Moses, any? hey, where's Moses? And all of a sudden they said, well, Moses is gone. We should, we, should, we should build a God, right? We should build a God to take us back to Egypt because we don't know what happened to our leader, Moses. Church, who is your leader? God. Never man. Man will fall. Man will stumble. We look to Jesus as our leader. Well, guess what happened? They got all the gold. They made this golden calf. They danced around it. God says, Moses, you better get down. The children are sinning. And so you guys know the story. There was judgment. Well, Ezra guys, is considered the second exodus, and as they leave captivity and bondage, Babylon gives them silver and gold and a lot of other things, and that's kind of where we pick up our story. Now, for the sake of our study, let's kind of read the decree so you guys have a good feeling for it. Look at verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Where's Persia? Iran, okay? All the kingdom of the earth of the Lord God has given to me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, let me just stop right there. Cyrus is not a believer. Cyrus is not, he's not a Jewish man. And God is using him. He's like, listen, this is what God put in my heart to build the house at Jerusalem. Well, who destroyed the house? Remember Nebuchadnezzar 70 years earlier came in and flattened everything. Killed people. I mean, it's, it was just is a horrible destruction. Nebuchadnezzar was no joke, guys. He was the most powerful king this world had ever seen. He was no joke. But now Cyrus says, "This is the decree: May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in, Ju- in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God." which is in Jerusalem and whoever is left in any place where he dwells let the man here's verse 4 notice let the man of this place help him with silver gold goods and livestock besides a free will offering for the house which is in Jerusalem this is what Cyrus decrees he says you guys y'all need to help y'all need to support this everyone everyone yes sir Let me get the wallet out, here you go, here you go, here's an offering, here you go, yes sir, this is going to be good, this is going to be good. So you have the initial decree, he gives us the decree, and in verse 5, the scene changes just a little bit. Look with me at verse 5, guys, the scene changes in just one verse, and then it comes back, it says, then the heads of the fathers of the house of Judah and Benjamin and the priest and the Levites with all whose spirits God has moved, arose to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So it kind of gives us a little scene change for just one verse. But the returning exiles, guys, were the minority. Yet, think, check this out. They were spirit-stirred minority. They were dedicated to a difficult and discouraging task of what? returning to a ruined city, and once there to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You go, what do you mean? Let's read it again. See, then God does something to the fathers in in the houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and they're like, we got to build a house. We got to build a temple. We got to build this temple. Now, I love, I love that you guys are, I mean, this is just, it's just amazing, and it blessed my heart so much. We were in Israel, okay? And our God, bless her heart, we love her to death, but she kept saying that this, you know, that they, were, they had built, and they called it Herod's temple, okay? That Herod built the second temple, okay? And they kept saying Herod, and Herod built the, built the second temple, and Tammy pulls me aside and she goes, that's not Herod's temple. That, I mean, he didn't build the second temple you taught us that Ezra came back and built the foundation of the temple. And I looked at her and I said, you are right. She's been here through the whole Nehemiah study and, 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 and so forth. So, and the whole Daniel study. So she, I was like, you're right. I said, and so I went up to the guide and, and she said, well, yeah, I mean, Ezra, they built a foundation and a little bit of it, but then Herod came in and made it elaborate. And so they just call it Herod built the second temple. But but see, you see how it, it was just amazing and it blessed your pastor's heart when people go, oh, I get it, I get it. And so God stirred in them. He said, we've got to build this thing. We've got to build this. This is this, is, this is what we've got to do. And I thought, man, it's essential that God moves in the spirits of those returning exiles because guess what? We think it was just a simple task, Right? but I want you to understand this. It wasn't, they're gonna face many difficulties. You go, know, like what? Well, the journey itself was long, dangerous, and expensive. If you were here for our Daniel study and Daniel got Daniel got stripped from, from Jerusalem and he was taken to Babylon, does anybody remember how long, how many miles that was? How much? See, there you go, 900 miles, she remembers, 900. So for them to go back, guys, they had to travel 900 miles. I mean, even in a car, that's a lot. Even in an airplane, that's a lot, right? Well, it's a couple of, it's two and a half hours, but then, well, let's see. If You go 500 miles an hour, then probably a couple of hours. But, but walking, Whew. you go, what else? Well, they're returning to a city in its ruins with no proper homes, roads, or city institutions. They're coming back to a bunch of rubble. Notice also that they didn't have the materials that they needed and the resource. And they didn't all return to Jerusalem, but it spread out all over the the, the, the province of Judea. Not to mention that Israel always has had many enemies and I don't know if you know this, but even though they were, they were decreed to go back to Jerusalem and build the house of the Lord, okay, the land was actually in the possession of another empire at the time. I mean, this was a difficult task. Listen, before we move on, before we move on, I want you to assess your spiritual walk right now. Do you realize that it's a difficult task? You go, why? I mean, think about it, guys. Sometimes the journey itself is long. I've been a Christian for... I've been a Christian for... I'm still waiting for the promises of God. The journey is long. It could be dangerous, and, and obviously it could be expensive, right? Think about this. You also have many enemies. And you're living in a land... That's actually in possession of another empire. I mean, the Christian walk, think about this. Let me clarify, okay? The real Christian walk is hard and dangerous. I'm not talking about buying a t-shirt and saying, hey, I prayed a prayer sometime, now I'm a Christian, or I'm a Christian because I was born in Texas, or I'm a Christian because my daddy was a pastor. I am talking about a real walk with God each and every day. I'm talking about a bona fide wow. It's hard, and that's why not a whole lot of people are doing it. Now keep this in mind too, church. Only 50,000 Jewish people went home. A lot of others stayed behind in Babylon. You go, wow, what does that mean? Now, we need to know that some stayed in Babylon because they were elderly. They couldn't make the 900-mile journey, okay? They were old, and I'm not about to let grandma and grandpa walk, you know, 900 miles. They'll die on the trip, okay? So, so you came here 70 years, okay, so you stay. I get that. And then also there were some that were ill. They were sick, And so they, you know what, you want (coughs) to, I'm going to go back, I don't feel so good. No, you stay in Babylon, we get that. Not to mention, I mean, remember, it's a 900-mile journey back. But let me say this to you before we move on, guys. One of the saddest reasons that the people became, that the people stayed in Babylon, you ready, jot this down, they became really, really comfortable there in Babylon. God told them, go, make a living, you're going to be there for 70 years. But they got really comfortable. You go, what does that mean, pastor? What does that mean they got really comfortable? Guys, first and foremost, they didn't want to go home. They looked at their lives there in Babylon and said, things are good here. Things are way good. I mean, I've got money in the bank. Man, I got a nice house. I got nice things. I got a great job. Why would I want to go back to Israel? Why would I want to go home? Why would I want to go build this thing? No, 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 no. I got some good stuff here. Now, listen to me. It's not not wrong for you to have nice things. You got that? Pastor Ben said we can't have nice things. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, guys, is when those things have you and keep you from all that God has for you, then it becomes, once again, probably an idol. Probably an idol. So 50,000 people, that's the first thing. Number two, think about this. God only always uses a small remnant of people to do his work, right? You go, what do you mean? Well, think about this. The more people who went back to build the house of the Lord, the more man would take its glory. Well, we did this. And that's how man is. And so God will always use the minority because then again, God gets the glory, I mean, it's just like it's, it's it's just like I was thinking about this when I was when I was studying. I was thinking about like like our, our event last night. You know, we had some great servants, but only a handful. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, we didn't have the resources of a mega church, and then but but, but we pulled it off because God got the glory. How'd you do that? I don't know. How'd you get it all done? I don't know. Praise the Lord. Because God will take the small things, and when we give him glory, now here's the thing, guys, if you and I can explain it, then God's probably not in it. If you and I can explain, let me tell you how I did it, then God's probably not in it. But when you sit there and go, how'd you get this building? How'd you buy the chairs? I don't know. I don't know. Somebody just donated. Whatever. I mean, you see how God moves. And, and only 50,000 are going to back, but, but God's going to get the incredible glory. Well, back to our text. Look at verse 6. And all those who are around them, okay, so it's, it comes back, okay? All those who are around them encouraged them with articles and silver and gold and good and livestock and precious things besides all that was willingly offered. Verse 4, this was the decree verse 6 was the enactment. You go, what do you mean? Here's what I want you to see. God keeps his promises. He said, you're going to you're going to support the work and the people said, look what we're doing. We're supporting the work. And I'm going, wow. Cyrus, guys, decreed it, but God fulfilled it. God fulfilled it. Look at verse 6 with me real quick. And all those who were around them, notice what did they do, church? They encouraged those heading back. They encouraged them. How do they encourage them? They encouraged them, obviously, was what? Was more than verbal. They didn't just say, all right, good job, high five, go back, have fun. You're going to be all right. You're going to be good. Okay, holler at me when you get there. You know, send me a tip. It was more than that. Here's what they did, and I want you to see it, guys. They encouraged them with tangible encouragement of financial and practical backing for the work for the work. We can imagine that many of those who decided to stay in the lands of exile were, were still happy that others were going back to build the house of the Lord, and they wanted to support that work. They wanted to support that work. God keeps his promises. Amen? You go, what do you mean? Well, I told you to turn to Jeremiah 27. Let me show you something on Jeremiah 27. You should be there right there. Pick it up in verse 21, two verses real quick, but I want to show you that God keeps his promises. He says, yes, everybody with me? Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon, and they shall be there until the day I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to, what? This place. This place. Jeremiah is prophesying that the articles, right? The articles in that's used in the temple of God were going to be taken out of the temple and stored in Babylon. That's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar took the articles. You go, I'm not sure he said that. Second Chronicles, guys, Second Chronicles right, 36, right as it comes in, you'll see, if you'll read that, I don't have time to read it, but you'll see that it comes in and it says that they took the articles. And you go, well, what was the point? Here it is, you ready? A hundred years before this happened, Jeremiah said, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, verse 7 says, Cyrus, King Cyrus also brought the articles from where? Out of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem, and he put them in the temple of his God. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of um, Meredith, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shesh-bazar, that's Zerubbabel, the prince of judah so god fulfills his promises you go pastor what was the point do you guys remember when nebuchadnezzar he never really messed with the articles he took them back and he put them in the and he put them there in babylon but do you guys remember the next king who was that belshazzar do you remember belshazzar he had this wicked party and he decides to do something really really dumb he decides to take the articles out, right, that were in the temple. And he said, hey, bring the articles up. Let's fill them up. And while he's there having this drunken party, he sees this writing on the wall. Do you remember that? And and you go, well, what 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 did it say? Well, Daniel tells us what it said because Daniel was there. And here was the inscription according to Daniel 5, chapter 5, 25 through 28. It said, many, many, tekel you That's what was written on the wall. And he says, this is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and has finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Verse 28, Peris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. You know what? Belshazzar's over there having a good time. He's looking. He's, he's Wait, these are the articles that go in the house of the Lord. And now it's like many, many, Tekel, you, Farson, dude, you're done. You are what? Your days are numbered. And he died that night. Now, in these final verses, guys, we learned that they just itemized the articles. It totaled 5,400, of which 2,499 were listed in verses 9 and 10. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kind, 1,000 other articles, and all the articles of gold and silver were 5,400 all these Sishabar took with the captives who were brought back from Jerusalem. Now, here's what I want you to understand, okay? Number one, we get that God keeps his word. You get that, right? Number two, God is very interested in details. Why? He Verses 9 and 10, why do they tell us all the details of what was brought back? Here's why. Because I want that to be a comfort to your life because he's interested in the details of your life. You're not just a name. You're not just a number. He's not just looking. He's very interested in the details of your life. So when you pray, pray in detail. He knows. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. Here's what I want you to think about, okay? God promised to restore his people to to their land. And really, from the outside, that looks impossible. It looks impossible because Cyrus, the king of Persia, is in charge. It looks impossible because the people possibly can't afford to go to Jerusalem and build a temple. They just couldn't go back. Listen, God makes the impossible happen. God stirs up the spirit of men. Now, here's what I want to do, guys, for the rest of our time. Let's go ahead and explore um, really quick some application from our text, okay? Okay. And Josh can kind of make his way up here as we'll move right into communion. Number one, jot this down. God makes the impossible happen. Here's the question that we should ponder. Are you looking at something in your life or in your world that seems impossible? You go, well, like what? Well, I think for some, you know, a lot of people feel like adopting kids is impossible. Maybe overcoming infertility, overcoming same, some temptation or pattern of sin in your life. Pastor, that seems impossible. Or maybe you're dealing with a difficult situation at work. Maybe you think I need to grow in wisdom to the point that you'll be useful for the Lord. What do you look at in your life and say, that's impossible? And when you do that, think about this. God, God keeps his word. God keeps his word. That's the first thing. Can I get a good amen? Amen. The second, guys, the second thing I want to leave you with as we get ready to partake in communion is I want to leave you with the promises of God. See, last week I said, hey, how many of you know the promises of God? If God keeps his promises, I want them. And I want to know them. So I want to go through just a few. I want to give you some promises from the Old Testament. I want to give you some promises from the New Testament. And then we're going to pray and make our way into communion. You ready? Here's some promises from the Old Testament. God has promised that if we search him or we search for him and we fi- we will find him. He's not playing hard to get. Our God is near to us when we pray to him. This is Deuteronomy chapter four. God promised protection for his children, Psalm 121. God promised that, he will, that his love will never Fail. He is faithful in every... Do you, do you know that one? That God... First Chronicles sixteen thirty four. God promised that his love will never fail. Here's another promise. God promised Israel that their sin would be forgiven, their prosperity restored, and their nation healed. Repentance opened the road to fellowship and blessing. Here's another promise. You ready? God promised blessing for all those who will delight themselves in his word. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Simple faith has its rewards. Promises from promises of God in the New Testament. God promised salvation to all those who believe in his son. God has promised that all things work together for good. God promised that there's comfort in our trials. God promised every spiritual blessing in Christ. God promised to finish the work He started in us, Philippians 1 6. God does nothing in half measures. measures. He started the work in us and He will be sure to complete it. God promised peace when we pray, Philippians 4 6 through 7. His peace is protection, it will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. God promised to supply our needs. Matthew 6.33, Philippians 4.19. Last but not least, these are, these are promises that Jesus, Jesus promises in the Gospels. Jesus promised us rest. The burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus promised us an abundant life to those who follow him, John 10.10. Jesus promised eternal life to those who trust him. The good shepherd also promised to hold us securely. No one will snatch them out of my hand, he says. And Jesus promised that his disciples power from on high. And this power, they would turn the world upside down. Jesus also promised that one day he'd return for us. And from then on, we will always be with him. Guys, listen, when it comes to the promises of God, God never breaks his promises. And that's what I want to leave you with. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and the truth in your word, and we love you. Tonight, as we partake in communion, God, as we worship you, we know that you are here with us, and we love you, and we thank you. Listen, at Calvary Chapel we have what you call open communion. And what that means is that you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion. But what we do ask is that you are a member of the body of Christ. You go, what does that mean? That you are a born-again, spirit-filled believer in Jesus. If you are a born-again, spirit-filled believer in Jesus, you are born again, just like he said, you go, what does that mean? That you're a Christian, the table is open to you. If you are not a believer and you want to be, then you came to the right place. Because Jesus says, listen, you just need to come to me and all your sins will be forgiven. And I will wash you. And I will wash you clean. And I'll put my life in you. And you will always be with me. So as Josh leads us in worship, guys, take a moment to pray. And then when you're ready, come on up. Pray with each other, love on each other. If you're here tonight and you have never given your life to Jesus, and you you are here and you're like, I, I'm on the road, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know that if I died today that I would I would go to heaven, but I want to. I just don't know how, Pastor. Well, I want to give you an opportunity. You go, what do I have to do? Do I have to like join your church? No, no, no. Listen, it's not about it's not about a relationship with a pastor or a priest or anything else. It's about a relationship with God. You go, what do I have to do? In a moment, all you have to do is just lift up your hand and we'll pray for you. And we'll lead you in a prayer, a prayer of salvation, a prayer of faith. And you surrendering your life to Jesus? You go, what happens? God is going to come in and he's going to give you a new heart and he's going to do an incredible work in your life, but you have to be willing to surrender. Right where you're at. So with every eye closed and every head bowed, I just want to ask, before we move into this time, is there anyone here that would say, Pastor, I think you were talking to me. I think I want to give my life to God once and for all. I think I want to be a Christian. I want to, I want to follow him. I want to take communion, but I want to make sure that I'm a believer. If that's you, will you just lift up your hand so I can pray for you? just want to give you an opportunity for you to surrender right now. And you say, wow, okay. And just lift up your hand and go, Pastor, pray for me. No one else will see. Just lift up your hand. Thank you, Lord. Let's worship the Lord.